Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plug-in makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the world of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the world of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Da Vinci, who is a music producer, performer, finger drumming pioneer, and a creative educator. Da Vinci has been performing and producing for many years with people like the Soliloquists of Sound and also with Ms. Lauren Hill. Seriously, just look up one of his YouTube videos and you will absolutely see how wild it is to see him perform and how mind-melting his finger drumming really is. Da Vinci also runs a company called Studio Sensei, where he teaches creatives of all types to create freely without shame, guilt, and overthinking, and instead learning to focus on trusting ourselves and truly learning to love the process. And through Studio Sensei, he's normalizing holistic solutions to the issues that creatives deal with every single day. And I've personally chatted with Da Vinci many, many times, and his advice has helped me a ton in my creative process. So I think you're really going to love this episode where he dives deep on the truth behind the creative process, how to deal with the struggles that every creative goes through, and how to make sure that we not only love the process, but we love the process of learning to love the process. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Da Vinci. There's so many places to start with with the first question, but I'm really, really curious just to hear like a brief kind of overview, or as long as you want, really, of your journey through music, because I know it's crazy and so non-traditional in so many ways. I think most musicians' careers are really non-traditional. So I want to hear about yours from starting out, maybe when you're working shitty jobs to support yourself as a musician, all the way to now you're playing with Miss Lauren Hill, you've done stuff with the Soliloquist of Sound, everything in between. Give us an overview. Oh, so we're just hopping right in, huh? We're just going right in. Yeah, we just go right in. All right. So yeah, you're right. It's a bit of a crazy answer, but you know, one by now I've answered enough times that every time I re-answer it, I'm trying to figure out how to do so in, in ways that entertain me and, and reach new levels of brevity. <laughs> but <laughs> it's an art. Yeah. You know, I just like music and uh, here I am. <laughs> that's, that's the, I think I beat my own record there. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Depending on when I've been asked that over the years, there's slightly different revelations that have occurred since being here as long as I've been. Uh, not to say that that's a long time, but just as long as I've been, that tend to color that answer more and more from different angles. If you were to ask me when I was 14 why I got into music, it'd probably have a lot to do with Wu-Tang and um, just probably wouldn't have admitted it then, but wanted to be Wu-Tang, <laughs> right? I, I think around that age, uh, a good summation of my fascination with music was having previously wanting to be an inventor. When I heard hip-hop music in particular, I was fascinated by, wow, how'd they do that? Because all the music I had experienced up till then was either associated with a good time my mom blasted Motown in the car 
or something that was like kind of silly and strange, like walking past MTV and seeing Warren's cherry pie video playing on the on on the TV and just being like, meh, I'm not really interested in that and like going outside and playing. And um like using my my keyboard that I got, like my musical keyboard that I got when I was a kid to make Rube Goldberg inventions out of to like warn me when people were opening my bedroom door like a ball would hit this and roll (laughs) over there and make that happen and then hit a key that would start the demo song still remember that demo song the song was awesome and they would like turn to stop. People open the door a lot, huh? Yeah, yeah. It would go. It would just turn to like all the different modes of the keyboard. I'm. I digress. Um. So it would go from you know, those were like my early interactions with music, and it wasn't until I heard hip hop and then saw hip hop also that I was like really fascinated and, and it kind of tickled my, my, my hunger to invent because I was just like, man, when I look at this band play, I know exactly what's happening. I can see the bassist and I hear bass. I can reverse engineer it really easily. When I listened to hip hop, I was like, what is, what is that? What is that? What is that? There were all these sounds that I was just, I couldn't place. And that that really intrigued me and before even the music of it i i was trying to break dance on my kitchen floor and there's just something about it this uh very inventive non-traditional nature about it that that really caught me and and i wanted to i wanted to do that in particular i really enjoyed the behind the scenes work that was being done because again that's the stuff that i couldn't see but i i loved all aspects of it i, I was rapping before i was making beats from from that standpoint, that's kind of what got me, like hooked me in. And later, all of the music that influenced and made up the tapestry of hip hop music then influenced me. And I started branching off and really fell in love with jazz and all these other things. But if you were to ask me now, you know, skipping over a, a bunch of different things, what what got me into music in the first place? I'd still have the same answer, but I, I, I realized now there was something that preceded even that before Wu-Tang, before invention, and before I could even talk, which is martial arts. And obviously I can trace back Wu-Tang to the martial arts thing, but uh, my dad was teaching me martial arts my whole life. And I, I, I didn't really know that that was something being taught to me that was different from what anybody else was growing up with. Because if you're taught that before you can walk or talk, then you just kind of take it for granted. Like, oh, this is what we do. You know, this is what we do. So what martial arts was to me, what I gathered from from his interpretation of it, and by the way, he's just a fantastic martial artist, like really incredible and a great teacher. Martial arts was less about self-defense and less about fighting or whatever, and more about uh, a physical representation of self-refinement. And because that was the first way to learn that I learned, I really think that that colored everything else in my life afterwards. So I can kind of trace everything back to that in a way where I feel like I'm a martial artist first and everything's 
either secondary or tertiary to that. Even music, you know, I, f- I consider myself more a martial artist who uses music as a weapon than the other way around or, or any other version of that. And, and again, reiterating martial arts being a practice of self-refinement. So like music being a weapon of self-refinement. So it's, it's that, that really got me into it, but you know, somewhere in the middle there for a good chunk of it, I was completely convinced that the way that I was introduced into music is the way that I want to pursue it. Right. Like through the music industry, I want to be the people that I'm listening to. I want to be in the dynamic positions that they're in. I want to be, you know, those memes where it's like, I just want to be looked at the way that, uh, whoever looks at, you know, this, you know, like, or get you someone who looks at you like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Get you someone who looks at you like fill in the blank to me. I, I wanted to be the person that I was looking at and I wanted to be in the position that people were looking at me the way I looked at them. Like that was very attractive to me. The way that I was looking at them was not just in like this kind of vapid admiration, but I was so inspired and it was, it was life affirming. It was soul affirming. It was affirming to everything and simultaneously giving me this hunger for life and, and to pursue something so passionately to inspire in the same way that I was being inspired that way. I didn't note it then, but I, I realize now it's like, I just wanted to complete that cycle, do more of that, you know, what better way to give it up to the glory than keep it going. Right. So that passion brought me to places far beyond where I was even shooting for, you know, I, I wanted to inspire people the way that I had been inspired. I wanted to innovate. I didn't know exactly how, but I, I really wanted to just somehow innovate. I wanted to, you know, be able to play every instrument, right? And these were like goals that I really wanted to do, but I didn't know where to even to start. I all The only tool I really had was this passion for learning and doing and playing music, you know, and creating and producing music. So at that point, I just ran with that. And, and at some point, years down the line, I, I found that I had far like surpassed these goals but in a way that I hadn't really accounted for or, or thought that I would. You know, I, I, I want to inspire people the way I'd been inspired, the way the people inspired me, inspired me. And what I didn't realize I was going to do was wind up inspiring the people that inspired me in the same way they inspired me, which is, wow. Like people like a uh, local jazz le- legend in town, Anthony Cole, Miss Lauren Hill. Like these are people who have been inspired by me and have explained it to me in a way that I'm like, but you do that for me and you've done that for me. So I didn't even account for that. That's definitely an upgrade from the original goal. Another upgrade was I wanted to play every instrument. Well, I didn't really have every instrument <laughs> and I, I certainly didn't have uh, a lot of resources locally in Wimmelsdorf, Pennsylvania, this really small town that I grew up in to, to practice every instrument or, or, or learn. And definitely YouTube wasn't a thing yet. So I didn't know I was going to do that. 
But when I look back, I kind of exceeded that goal too, in a roundabout way. I can play every instrument I want through here, <laughs> you know, through this drum machine, through through this Ableton push. And what's cool about that is I don't have to carry all the different instruments to every gig. Like this thing fits in a shoulder bag really easily or just in my hand. There's some benefits to that. Sure, I can't, you know, pick up a violin and, and go go to town, but I can get what I want out of a violin sound, again, having no traditional music training. And that's another thing, like, I wanted to not just be able to play every instrument, but be a legitimate musician, which coming up in hip hop, I think the way that I came up without any traditional training and just being self-taught uh, for so long, I didn't think that that was a thing. Like maybe that manifested as imposter syndrome later on. But when I found myself to be like the band leader of a band that was not only supporting a living legend like Miss Hill, but also comprised of living legends in their respective fields, like Doug Wimbish from Living Color on bass, uh, Eric Gales on guitar, and you know different bass players like that played with Bob Marley and Bad Brains, Gerald Jennifer from Bad Brains, and different people. And these people, like I, I could have musical conversations and lead the band of such heavy hitters. And I'm just like, all right, there's no room to have any imposter syndrome now. There's too much physical evidence that says, yeah, it's, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell that you're an imposter here. So that's another thing I've exceeded. And lastly, like to innovate in some sort of way, kind of just pouring all of my existing passion into the instrument I did have, the path that I did have, which was hip hop and using MPCs as my drum machines. I got to be known as one of the first people to pioneer a movement that is huge now, like finger drumming and controllers and things like that. There were just a handful of us at that time, and there was no name for it. We were just doing what we did. So I had no idea I was going to innovate in that particular way. I thought I'd just make some different or fresh music, but to be known for something like that, to be called like the Jimi Hendrix of the MPC or something as I was for years or whatever, is I, I don't take that to the head. I, I take that to the heart, you know, because I understand where it's coming from, where it's trying to be given to. And it's really awesome. It's a great thing. This is very opposite of brief. <laughs> it's great. It's great either way. I love it. I love it. And I'm curious about that like middle ground, though, when it was the struggle and you're coming up and it wasn't a clear path. Like, what was that like? Because I think every musician goes through just this weird gray area and every single one's is different of, OK, I have to learn these skills. Oh, what about this? What about this? Let me explore this. Oh, I met this person. Like, what were those kind of that climb like when you didn't really know everything was clear or 100 percent sure? You know, I'm fortunate to have started early enough to be very ignorant for a good portion of my career as a musician, my journey as a musician. I, I credit a lot to my ignorance, my ability to do what I've done with the machines that I did them with, with the gear that I did it with, because I didn't have anyone showing me what was right and wrong. In fact, like it was me hearing music and assuming incorrectly how it was made that made me come up with some of my own bespoke ways of making music. 
you know, I, I told you when I listen to hip hop in my headphones, I hear all these crazy sounds like, what is that? How, where's that coming from? Like I'd hear metal or something. I'd be like, sounds like a chain, you know, or something like that. And then, and then I'd be like, okay, that's what you do, right? You, you sample a chain, you like drag it on the floor, you sample it, and then you put that in your music. And years later, I find out like, oh, that was just the rapper's necklace getting picked up by the mic or something, or, or all that weird sound was just like part of the loop, you know, that they looped up. They didn't play anything. They just looped it. And rather than being disappointed by that, I was just like, oh, that's cool that I got that wrong because now I know how to do all those things. And when I found myself in a room with other programmers and, and somebody's asking, like, I need somebody to make a, a snare that sounds like like a frog in Tupperware or something. I'm just like, I, I know how to do that. <laughs> like, I've done that many times, <laughs> you know, like, that's an exaggeration. But you know what I mean? <laughs> like, just all these bespoke skills came from my lack of knowing any better. And I really value that. I, I have a lot of uh, interns come through and young people like that come be part of the Studio Sensei team here and there. And I'm always trying to tell them, like, I know I'm in a position of a mentor or, you know, a boss or something, but I, I really want you to show up. I want you to bring what you have to the table, even if you think that it's completely uninformed. I want you to, like, own it. Because I cannot buy what you got, right? Like, it's invaluable. I really value an unlearned position, an unlearned perspective. Because it's learning these things that then allow us to, to have shame or to stop or, you know, to slow down. And that's why I say, like, ignorance for me was such a valuable asset. And I'm so glad, like, I started my pursuit in music so early, like, from you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old and getting to stay in that for well over a decade. And it wasn't until like well over a decade, I really started to understand things that had I understood earlier might've never pursued what I pursued, at least not with as much gusto, which uh, arguably is, is the reason I got the things that I got anyway, is because of that. And I think that's why young people are so important and young perspectives are so important too, because we're kind of taught that knowing better is better. You know, it's implied in the saying, but it's not really. It's just knowing something else. And it's it's really relative whether or not that thing that you know now is helpful to the bespoke journey that you're impassioned to follow or or that you define as your purpose. I think that that's, that's something that I, I, I search for these days you know, to, to be as wide eyed and ignorant about things, even knowing what I know now, like owning it. It's like choosing friends to be your family, as opposed to just being family with the family you're given makes it even a little bit more special in a way. And, uh, I think that it's a, it's a huge valuable thing. So that middle ground, like you asked about, I don't think, um, what specifically was your question about that? Yeah, I'm curious basically about like what struggles you kind of hit in that kind of climb up to becoming a full-time musician. Oh, see, again, I was very fortunate to meet somebody who was very supportive of my youthful energy and the ideas that a 17, 18, 19-year-old 
would have arguably very ignorant to the world. <laughs> We've all been there. Well, anyone past it has been. And we, we know and can look back at that time like, man, I knew nothing, <laughs> you know? And I, I was very fortunate to link up with my homie Swam, who was very just supportive and encouraged me in what I thought I wanted to do. And that's who I started Soliloquist the Sound with, was Swam. Uh, him and him and another guy I was producing with, who later on became like Justin Timberlake's uh, musician, musical director for all different pop people and stuff like that. But like then it was just me and Swam, and he would take me around town and and just say, "This is eighteen year old prodigy, eighteen year old prodigy." You know, even when I was nineteen and twenty years old, he'd still say that. <laughs> he'd still say like eighteen year old prodigy because uh, it's like he knew something I didn't, and he just like really encouraged it. And uh, I still live with this man today. You know, that's my brother. We've lived together for over 18 years and toured the world, done stuff with Soliloquist, him, Alexandra, and my wife, Tanya. And the struggles at that time, sure, there were a lot, but it's hard to look at them as unfortunate at all. Like, even then, I, I really appreciated them. And I was like, man, I. I remember there was a point in time where we were all living together with a couple other people in the house. It's a five bedroom house. We had like five people there. And I don't know if it's because we were a little too colorful for the neighborhood, so to speak, or what, because we certainly weren't disruptive, but we got us like a, a notice on our door one day, like you got too many people living here that aren't related. And we got the newspaper and the press behind us. Like, we are family. Like, we are absolutely family, regardless of blood adoption or marriage. You know, we are family. And when we went to the hearing to fight this, because they were saying, get out, you know, right. we really moved the people making the decision. And it was crazy because we had so many letters. I did this big speech. We had our whole side of the room was full of people. And then on the other side, there's just this, this one old guy, like just one dude, <laughs> just a grump. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, we moved them, but unfortunately we didn't move the law and they said, you know, I'm, I believe that you guys are family, but the law's the law. You guys got to get out. And then like a week later, hurricane Francis put a tree through our house. Whoa. Specifically through our recording studio which was my studio in the garage and then like put a hole through the roof and all that, which is its own crazy story. Pulling all the stuff from the studio, you know, with all the people we had at the house because we're having like a little hurricane party and um, doing like an assembly line, saving all the gear while the, you know, like at night in the middle of the, like the biggest hurricane of the last couple decades, you know, <laughs> was was pounding the house uh but when we woke up the next day you know we were our house had you know it, it was condemned so we couldn't be there and we had to live out of our cars at that point i was like i am so excited because i knew we were doing everything right you know because like you can know if you're doing something right like mm -hmm. You have a choice. You can do the thing that's in the better interest of yourself and others or the thing that's in lesser or varying degrees of both. And I've always tried to make the decision of 
what's the best thing I can do here for me and and others? You know, not just myself and not just others, but for both. I, I, and I always I always try to lean towards that. And I knew we were doing everything right. So I was like, I just know that we're earning something so great now, right now. All this crazy stuff is happening. We're homeless. Like, I can't wait to see what's around the corner. And what's around the corner at that time is more hurricanes. <laughs> like, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was Hurricane Charlie that that hit our house. So yeah, Hurricane Charlie put the tree through our house. And then the next one that was like a serious threat was Hurricane Francis. And I remember Hurricane Francis coming and Swan being like, we got to like, let's go to Chicago where he's from. We'll go there. And I was like, hold on, let's, uh, and he was like, what do you mean? Hold on. We got to go. <laughs> and I was like, no, but what if we went up this way? Sage Francis had invited us based off a demo we gave him to play this fundraiser in Rhode Island, you know, in three weeks or so. And I worked on this album with MF Doom and there was a release party for that, the Victor Vaughn two Venomous Villain album in happening in New York City at the Knitting Factory the night before that. I was like, what if we make our way up there? And we, you know, what we did is we wound up doing like an impromptu tour running from the hurricane because that, that hurricane went and followed us all the way up to Rhode Island. It was a, a, a storm by then, but it really chased us the whole way up there. By the time we did that final show, and up until then, just like Alexandra from our group, she's really good on the phone. She would call open mics and get us features like hours before the open mic. So that's how we booked it, like the day of, you know, and we did all that. And we smashed that last show so hard, so hard. Uh, there's video footage of it. The crowd was going crazy. And we sold out of every single piece of merch that we had left that night. And when we came back to Orlando, our landlord was like, I have this other house. I don't think you guys will like it, though. And we saw it and we loved it. He's like, oh, I thought it'd be too small for you guys. No, we love it. So we we came back to an even better house on a lake. It was beautiful. And then also to an email from Sage Francis saying, hey, I uh, have my debut album on Epitaph Anti-Records and just like the biggest, you know, independent label in the States. And it's coming out and I'm about to do a huge 40 plus city tour. What's it going to take for you guys to open and be my backing band for this whole tour. And we went nuts. And that was what was around the corner. And what was around the corner from that was this whirlwind of introduction into the, to this scene that he was so big in Sage Francis. And, you know, every night we smashed it down. We had like five different back catalog albums and we sold 80 to 120 CDs a night, a night at $10 a pop, you know, and the, the head of anti records, Andy, um, who they, it's like anti is a sister label of epitaph. It's a label they made for Tom Waits because Tom Waits didn't really fit on the epitaphs roster, but they saw us and they saw the impact we we're making and they offered us a record deal, you know, off of that tour. It was crazy. I think the biggest um, hurdles we faced were just not knowing how to have help 
You know, like we were so singular, we were so in our own bubble that it never felt right when we had a manager or something like that. And because we were so capable in our own community, we were convinced we could do the jobs of everyone, which we did, but I think to our own fault. Not to say there was like any, I think the better way to put that is like that held us back. I think if we like would have invested more in, in other people to help along the way, to help manage this huge thing that we were doing, um, it, it would have blossomed even more. And, and we saw that when we linked with certain promoters and, and awesome people in France, because we have a big market in France and we just got so much love out there. And when we got to just chill and be artists, that's when we were like, oh, this is what that feels like. When we got signed to the record label, we made a pact. We were like, we're going to outsell the record label. Like now that we got signed, we're going to go even harder, you know? And we said, we're going to sell more records than you guys sell of ours. And I think we won that battle a little too easily. <laughs> There's so much good stuff there. And I remember a mentor of mine when I was in college, I lost out on like one of my first kind of projects. And his response was like, there'll be more and there'll be better. And that's basically case in point for you. It's literally exactly that. You know, a tree came through your house, but all these great things came around the corner. I was psyched. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Like, you, yeah, you're just because you knew you were doing the right thing. You're you're following that intuition. And you and me have talked a lot about that, like knowing what that intuition is, doing things in your best interest, being able to follow that gut. I don't even actually know how you learned all of this stuff. Does it come from martial arts? How do you how did you learn this kind of like brain to stomach connection that you have so well? Um, you know, as a, as a comic book fan, I've often tried to trace my own origin story <laughs> in that regard. And I definitely think that it's just a, a perfect storm of different things, you know, like. Martial arts ha had a huge bit to do with that. When you're taught the value of practice, it opens up things in such a, a um, profound way that keeps giving and giving. So because my dad taught me, he, he always said this, I'll practice it for the rest of my life. I'll never master it and hope to never use it. So as a kid, why am I doing this all the time if I'm going to practice for the rest of my life and never master and hope to never use it. You know, at some point, like it got ingrained in me, like, okay, I get it. It's about practicing it. You do it because you love practicing it. Am I saying with Studio Sensei, which is, you know, my creative wellness platform, talk about that because that's a whole other journey. But my saying is always, you know, one of them is keep practicing, loving the practice and looking at things like that, like, your only job here is to practice loving, practicing whatever you're doing. Because I have the saying that God is a skill. My, my good friend and I say this to each other all the time. God is a skill. We say it like, amen. You know, like it, it basically, among other things, it, it really just drives the point home that everything is a skill. That means that everything that you spend time on doing, you're practicing, developing some sort of skill whether it's laziness or happiness or, you know, nothingness or somethingness or soccer or making spaghetti, you know, like all these things are a skill and how sobering and awesome 
that fact is, you know, that all I got to do is spend time doing this thing and, and I get better at it. That's cool. Now let me go through and audit all the things that I do in a day. And all I got to do is make sure that things that I'm getting better at are things that I want to get better at, (laughs) you know? So I think that outlook that is something I'll practice, never master and hope to never use got ingrained in me and then all, all the other practices and the truths that are undeniable because they're truths of physical motion and the actual body really drove home the greater parts of Eastern philosophy in my Western upbringing. You know, my dad's Filipino, I'm half Filipino and the martial arts comes as a package deal with some very profound teachings. But again, it was something I took for granted. Even this, like I have like this little, it's funny, I have these things that people gave me. You know, I have a Buddha on my desk and I have this little ninja here. And, um, you know, I never studied Buddhism, but every time I hear anything about Buddhism, I'm like, ah, yeah, that's true. So I'm just like, why do I know that already? And I think it just came with the territory of uh, the universal truths that are undeniable when put in a physical context. What I mean by that is uh, I wrote this book when I was like very young, 20 something, 19, whatever. I don't know. It's called Neo-Humanism, a survival guide for those who choose to be. It's like a very short thing. And it was just like, I wrote the book because I had this friend that I'd get in arguments with and he, you know, had like a history of abuse. So like if you got too into it, he would shut down and he'd have to leave. And I am not one to deal with conversational blue balls well at all. Like I have to talk things out. I really do. You know, I'm very verbose, long-winded person, but that comes from a place of like, I really adore communication and the fruits that it bear when, when you go into it with someone. And when that would get cut off with this person, I would then have only myself to argue with. And all the, the one arguments I've had over myself, I would then start writing down. And that's what I made this book from, you know, it was like, all right, well, I won this argument against myself. I'm going to take notes. So like one thing I started exploring was universal truths, saying that if something is truly true, then it will be true everywhere. Right. And the more something is true, the more universally true it will be. So something like the idea of karma or like the idea of you get out what you put in or whatever you put out there comes back to you or Newton's laws of physics. Every action has an opposite and equal reaction or just observing that when you push a kid on a swing, it comes back to you. You know, like those are all basically the same dynamic truth, but expressed in different facets of life, whether science physics, religion, spirituality, or whatever. So like you can test the truth's validity by applying it across different contexts. And the more places it's dynamically true, then the more rock solid of a universal truth it can be, and then call you the universal truth. So um, I think I, I really benefited from the universal truths that are apparent in a physical art form. I think studying martial arts, also it coming from a place of 
you know, being kind of inundated with such wise philosophical ideas. I think that that really taught me everything I needed to know, at least foundationally. And then being brought up that way and learning how to practice and learning how to learn that way really opened me up to to be fast at applying what I learned more immediately. People always said that I was older than my years or whatever, even like at parties when I was like 20 or 19, I, I would just be sitting at party and they'd call me Grandpa Da Vinci. You know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> I was just like, Meh, you know, like whatever. But it kind of just came off that way. And um, I always attributed that to me learning what was presented to me the first couple, couple times around, as opposed to having to experience them many times to learn them. Like, I didn't have to eat the whole box of donuts to understand that one was enough or like that this wasn't necessarily doing what I wanted it to do for my body. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And then also really getting to test and develop and let those concepts, uh, learning concepts thrive and grow and flourish by being a creative and being involved in a creative industry was just a, a really good mix of things then on the other hand i had just a, i had a lot of love in my house sure it wasn't perfect and also you know my mother who's been through so much hardship in her life and been victimized so many times like abused in so many different ways and the struggle she had with that also gave me this other aspect of like being inoculated to inner pain what I mean by that is, I think that's that's a key factor too, is, is the fact that I had a very different relationship with pain growing up. You know, because of the martial arts thing, it was bonding for my dad to beat me up as opposed to like, I got beat as a kid, you know? It was like our love language. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. and my mom's a very physical person too. She slapped my dad across the head and say, you're cute or bite us or something like, you know, she's, she's a bitey, hitty person. <laughs> and she liked that my dad would kick my ass and she would encourage it sometimes. Like if my dad didn't that day, she would instigate and say, your son called me names and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> My dad would like play along and be like, what? And then like chase me around the house and then put me in a sleeper hold. <laughs> and I have a picture too. I, don't, I showed you that picture before. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like I, I had a, an interesting relationship with pain. And unfortunately, a lot of other kids growing up throughout history, really, my parents included, they had the opposite, you know, pain from a place of not necessarily coming from a loving place. To put it bluntly, I, I think pain is just such such an amazing teacher. So, you know, I kind of look at it as being, you know, like inoculated to pain, like like how a vaccine works when, when you're given like small controlled doses of the disease or virus or whatever in order to train your body to know what to do with it. You know, it's it's being given to you as a physiological, a biological learning tool. It's a learning experience that this thing's being given to you. And that's how pain was given to me too. You know, I look at like sparring and the, the object of sparring is to learn. 
and you do it with someone you trust. But anyone that doesn't know what that is will just walk by and be like, oh, those guys don't like each other and they're fighting each other. But there's a key fundamental differences between the two. In a fight, yeah, you don't feel as connected or trusting of the other person and you're trying to protect yourself or hurt them. And the object is is that, is like to hurt them or protect yourself or, or a loved one or your property or whatever. But with sparring, the object is let's fight each other together. Like, and, and we're not really fighting each other. We're refining our weak points into stronger points. Like, let's do this learning experience. And I'm only going to do it with people that I absolutely trust on a, on a deeper fundamental level. And when I get hit, I'm excited because it's like, ooh, now I know what to work on so that, God forbid, I'm ever in a real situation, I don't get hit for real. So being inoculated to pain kind of taught me how to treat everything like that, try to be, be a little bit outside of myself or out of my own head and and kind of look at things from a place of like, yeah, this sucks. Isn't this fascinating? You know, like, what can I get from this? And I got that inoculation to pain on, on two levels in a very straightforward external way with the martial arts, because I was my dad's uke, like the guy that you demonstrate on, whether in class or, or at home, I was the guy. And, and also with my mother, like, my mother introduced me to so much internal pain, not directly though. Like I saw the effects of her bipolarism and a life full of abuse and hardship and how that emotionally and, and mentally took a toll on her and got to learn it by watching her, which isn't great, but the effects of which are amazing because I don't think that I'm bipolar, right? But I, I almost kind of know by osmosis what it's like to be bipolar. And I don't mean to, you know, trivialize or, or assume I understand something that I don't, but I really feel like I've been inside of it or, or at least held it. Because what are we except, you know, our behaviors? And where do we learn our behaviors from except from our parents? So I think like the learned behaviors of being a victim and, and having those issues and things like that, I definitely, definitely enacted them and took them on as my own, which got confusing later on in life. Cause I was like, especially around my, my, my close friends, like, like soliloquists, like the, the ones in my group, they were like, why are you acting like this? Like, it's confusing. And that caused like some problems in communication, but uh, being around them to like really challenge, we really challenge each other. Again, we lived together for 18 years and we would like have like 24 hour arguments and stuff. Like we would go there with each other willingly because we knew we loved each other and we, we chose to do this thing. And, and that was like the real fire that forged all these lessons into weapons and really helped me to understand like, oh, I'm not a victim. That's why this is so confusing because I'm acting like one. Oh, that's coming from here. Oh, I understand that now I don't have to do it. So that inoculation to pain, being immunized to pain, both internal and external, having a loving environment that was the controlled environment of introducing those two levels of pain to me, really, I think, helped forge a swift learning machine or function within me to really get some of these ideas the first couple times around.
Nice. And you you do a lot to spread these ideas too. You know, you're on Instagram, you have YouTube videos, and you also have Studio Sensei too. So I'm curious with that. And I've learned a lot from you via Studio Sensei. And we've we've talked a lot about that sort of stuff. And I'm very curious about like what is your kind of intent with all the artists that you're helping? Because you do help a lot of artists get through their kind of internal blocks. It's not so much about here's how you use Ableton, it's more about Here's how you learn to love the practices. Here's how you get past this block. Here's how you prevent burnout. Or here's how you, even for me, like here's how you take time off, like even bigger, broader life lessons. And there aren't many people out there doing that in this field. So what was kind of the intent behind that? What is your intent behind that? Man, uh, there's so many levels to that answer. You know, I think we're multi-intentional all of the time. Uh, you know, I could say so many things that, that could have a grain of truth to them that exist with each other. For example, like simply I do this. I try to help as many people as I can because I can't help my mother. Mm, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? As, as much as I would like to, right? Like, and my mother is one of my favorite people on earth. She's incredible. She's such an inspiration to me. And if, if there's one thing I would love to do is help give her some peace of mind and space in the times when she's not able to have it. And because of our dynamic, not a bad dynamic by any means, we love the hell out of each other. But I think just like the inherent dynamic, like I'm not able to help her, like I'm able to help you. So vicariously, I'm, you know, selfishly trying to plug a hole that I'll never be able to plug. And I know that and I lean into it because if that's a coping mechanism, what a beautiful one. <laughs> you help, know, yeah, like, it helps a lot of people. I can't pay it back. So let me pay it forward like as much as possible. Second of all, like I've had FOMO before FOMO existed. And I just, if I have FOMO for anything, it's the fear of missing out on not just any opportunity per se, but like the opportunity to learn. I love learning things. That's why I love teaching. Teaching is like the best way to learn. In fact, it's the graduated form of being a student. And I realized that when I started teaching martial arts and things that I hadn't been able to do for my whole life, after like 10 years of not even trying it, the first time I try to show somebody else it, I do it. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, teaching is, is that shit when it comes to, you know, learning. So I love learning. I love any aspect of it, whether I'm on the, the learning side myself, whether I'm on the, the teaching side, which is like, again, a graduate form of learning or just getting to be part of that transformational moment when I see, you know, like I love talking to you because you're so animated. Like when I tell you something, I can see it hit, you know, I can see the epiphany on your face, in your hair, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's just going to be testimonial on your website. Right. Perfect. <laughs> it's hairs of epiphany. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love learning and I love that transformational aspect. And, you know, that FOMO thing to go back to that, I don't just miss out on the opportunity to learn. I feel it a crime when I go through so much to learn something and dissect it and put words to it and put coherent thoughts to it and find 15 different metaphors that can convey the same thing so that it can convey to 15 different types of people. I just don't want any of that to be done in vain. 
Like that's one of, I think, a big fear of mine that I'll do all this work and no one gets to appreciate it but me. I don't like that. I don't like the idea of like pouring my life energy and time into something and I'm the only one that gets to enjoy it. Nah, man. Like, nope. I don't want that. I don't want any of my hard fought lessons to be in vain. You know, if I go to hell, I'm not going to just go to hell for for nothing. While I'm there, I'm going to learn all about it. <laughs> I'm going to learn how to not get burnt as much, you know, how to like where the best food is, which I bet they have great food in hell. <laughs> and, and most importantly, I'm going to learn all the escape routes, how to get out of hell. And I'm going to make maps. And I'll be damned if somebody I love, which spoiler alert is everyone i i truly love everyone don't like everyone mm -hmm. but i love everyone i'll be damned if somebody that i know and love or or can see if i have to watch them go through hell mm. and know that they're going through hell and uh i don't know like look look homie i got a map where where are you you're here okay this is how we can get out of here if i'm a cartographer for the escape routes of hell I'm not going to keep those maps to myself. And again, it comes from a very selfish place. And I like that brand of selfishness because that brand of selfishness is, is scalable to others and to my own acceptance of being selfish. Like I, I, I can accept being that selfish because I know if you're selfish enough, you'll find ways that it connects with other people. Just like being more advanced of a student leads you to being a teacher, mastering selfishness wholly leads you to be the most compassionate person that, that's a huge part of it and i also just recently got a very harsh reminder of my purpose in all of this and uh i recently had uh like last week i lost a friend and i lost a friend that in my opinion in the worst way you can lose a friend is that they they took their own life and this guy Ugh, genius just absolute genius and i was working with him to like release uh, some amazing representations of his work and the few times that we did talk to each other you know we talked on zoom i had actual recordings of it and i went back and i, I looked for any evidence of warning signs or anything there was nothing there was nothing and i don't think i've ever had a death affect me this much whether family or friend, I was devastated. And uh, it's still, it's still there. You know, it was just last week. It wasn't that long ago. And it really, really destroyed me. Somebody who like practices gratitude and practices trying to honor the life that I'm given and honored the gift of life and all of life's gifts as much as possible. Just suicide is something that really is the opposite of that for me. Look, I don't mean to judge anybody because I, I don't assume to know what it's like to be at that point to do that. I don't. And I empathize for anybody that is. But it, it does burden me with the thought of, there's got to be something to do about that. You know? Look, like, like I said, I looked all over and I couldn't find any evidence that this was ever a possibility for this, this person. Every time we talked, it was pure joy. So I got reminded of a few things. I got reminded of how grateful 
I am to people like yourself and any one of my clients who takes the time, money, and energy to open themselves up to anybody else and, and talk through what's going on inside, whether it's, you know, simply about learning how to do something in, in your favorite DAW, <laughs> learning how to make more music or all of the other things that are inevitably connected to that, that expand into our life and, and encourage us to get in our own way. You know, I'm so grateful to those people who, who allowed this to happen, who allowed that conversation to happen. And it also reminded me like more than likely the people that need it most won't feel like it's an option to do, to reach out and that. Oh man, I can think of a few things worse than that. You know, I don't even want to try because I want to feel like it's bad. I want to feel like that's a bad reality to live in, to feel like you can't reach out and can't, you know, work through these things with one another, with, with other people, because I don't think that guy ever got to know how much I cared about him and how much of an effect he had on me, both in his passing and in his life. It's almost awkward if I, if I showed him that when he was around, he might be like, why we hardly know each other, you know, like, but I really do care like that much because I, at some point I realized that we're beings representing stocks here, you know, the stock of greatness, the stock of anger. We're not angry ourselves. We're representing it. And we're either raising the stock on that thing by uh, investing our energy, time and voices into it, or we're depleting it by invest, uh, selling that and investing our energy time and, and voices to other things. And I think the more that we invest in greatness, the more apparent it becomes that we also require support systems for greatness to exist. And if there's one problem, because like I said, I love to reverse engineer things. And just like I used to reverse engineer music, there's one problem that I come back to all the time that's like a foundational issue is the fact that there's seemingly far more uh, support systems for things that aren't necessarily in our best interest than we know about of ones that are. And when you realize that, what do you do? That's an insurmountable task to try to fix. Like, what do you, how do you do that? And the answer to anything is you do what you can, right? And for me, it's like I'm overwhelmed with these feelings of wanting my time not to be in vain and to have a clear grasp and wielding and sharing of my purpose, what I believe my purpose to be. Well, I'm the perfect candidate to just spend their days trying to normalize the language of solution, the language of support, and specifically support for the greatest parts of us that many of us have been taught to quiet and push away or ignore or take for granted. And man, you know, like I said, it's an insurmountable task, but if I get to talk with you every week for an hour and we have a conversation that's very matter of fact about the things that you want the most, you get practice talking about it. You can't help 
but say some of the things that I said or that we said together elsewhere. And like I said, God's a skill, man. Every time you practice something, you get better at it. And that's, again, back to martial arts. We did flow drills. When my dad and I would talk or we'd watch TV, we'd be doing a drill together. Oh, how was school? This, that, the other thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'd be doing this. Why would we be doing that? Because we knew that every moment that passed that we weren't doing that was a missed opportunity to burn the knowledge of this movement into our muscles. And, and it really is like a matter of life or death, whether our muscles know that or not. In a self-defense situation, if you have to think about the movement, thinking is too slow. Your body has to know it in order for it to move at the necessary speed to be effective. And what's it being effective at? Saving your life, saving your wife's life, your kid's life, whatever. You know, it doesn't even have to be a self-defense situation. You, your kid's about to go out in the street or something. Like, you know, your body knows to do something. And when you burn these, these more graduated movements, these more advanced movements that are more beneficial than the, the ones that might have already been programmed into us or that expound on the ones that are already programmed into us, then you're getting to teach your muscles something that's ultimately in your best interest in a way that if you do it enough, it becomes a reflex. It becomes a startle flinch reflex, the fastest movement that your body can do, faster than thought itself. Like your hand does it before you think to do it. And that's incredibly fast. And if we can train and spar with each other in a controlled environment and say these words enough and practice these thoughts enough, and then, of course, absolutely practice these behaviors that are in our best interest enough, well, then we'll do them without thinking. Then it just becomes commonplace, common knowledge. That's what I'm interested in seeing, a world where the hard-fought, hard-sought lessons to our biggest problems are a given. <laughs> so that's why you know, I created Studio Sensei and the ability to formalize conversations like that to happen on a regular basis and to make it, you know, my living to do that. It's such a beautiful, beautiful sentiment about all of this. And I think it's a perfect kind of point to wrap up on. So for the final question, I'm curious, where can people find you if they do want to work with you? What are your websites, Instagram handles, Twitter, anything like that? Throw it out there. Studiosensei.com is probably the most direct way to get a hold of me by like booking like a session with me or whatever, or just reaching out via email. Of course, I'm on Instagram under DaVinci, D-I-V-I-N-C-I, as well as Studio Sensei. I'm really building up my YouTube channel for Studio Sensei. And it's also just youtube.com slash Studio Sensei. Yeah, I mean, those three places link to all the other places, right? Those are the foundational places. Of course, I'm on Twitch, DaVinci Music, but... If you go to Instagram and just hit up DaVinci, D-I-V-I-N-C-I, and you go to my like little Linktree style link there, it's got everything you need. It's a solo.to slash DaVinci, D-I-V-I-N-C-I. And that's really got all the things that you would need. I'm also, uh, I don't know when this is coming out, but last year during Mental Health Awareness Month, I was very self-encouraged to do some free workshops every week. And in light of recent events and 
both personal and global. I'm trying to double down on that and, and do like a bunch of different free events focused on normalizing the kind of talk that's in our best interest to normalize. You know, when I think about mental health awareness, it, it sounds clinical and it sounds like something you don't want to deal with and sounds heavy. And that's the exact point. Like I want to take these things that are kind of like taboo to speak about and just start to have like matter of fact conversation about it in a practical sense. I'm going to be doing these in like a creative wellness type of context, as well as just like a community led uh, discussion piece every week. You know, I'm going to do like try to do like two every week. And I'm even like going to reach out to people to see if they can sponsor my time so I can make this all I do this month, you know, and put all of my effort into, into creating opportunities for that to happen in a very public way. I love it. You're, you're helping tons of people. And I think just through this, a lot of people are going to be helped and super dig this advice. I always love your advice. So I think a lot of other people will too. So I really appreciate you being on here. I appreciate you having me. I, I love you, dude. I love, I love uh, the opportunity to, to speak uh, with you and, and to do so outside of the context of a one-on-one -on -one session is really cool. I do most of the talk. Well, I do a lot of talking anyway, but. Right. I got to flip it around on you just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you got to put me in the, the interviewee chair for once. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.